The conversations at the interval take place a few times a month at the Long Now Foundation's bar, cafe, and museum venue, The Interval, in San Francisco. You can support this series by coming to a live event, spreading the word, or making a donation. Find out more at theinterval.org. Thanks for listening. This is the 21st talk of 2017 in this space, and uh, our last talk of the year here. Um, it's been a fantastic year, and first off, I want to thank, I, I know some people around here who have been to probably half of those talks, probably more than half of those talks, so thank you guys. Uh, everyone, you know who you are. Um, also, uh, join me, please, in thanking um, both our staff that are working behind the bar, our staff that are working on the production side, and maybe more even amazingly, uh, volunteers that help us at the door, help us with the mics. We have an amazing team here, both paid and volunteer. Thank you. Uh, yeah, thank you. And, and uh, it has been a great year, and we've got another great year. I'm not actually going to go into a lot of the details about next year's talk. You can see some next year's talks. You can see some on the monitor behind you. Theinterval.org has a list, and we'll be filling that out a lot more. Um, we have another really stellar year uh, ahead of us, and uh, we hope you'll you'll come back often. Um, so uh, I also want to thank CASBIS, uh, who are, um, the, which is the Center for Advanced Study of the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford. Um, we had Margaret Levy, the director of, of CASBIS, speak for us recently. Uh, they're a wonderful institution. You should check them out. We have some brochures uh, about them here. But uh, basically, they bring together amazing social scientists and others uh, who are doing really important work uh, for uh, a program throughout the academic year. And they let us borrow uh, a handful of them each year to, to come and speak to you here. So uh, Nate is currently a fellow at CASBIS. And uh, actually, the first of this class, we're going to have four or five more CASBIS fellows speaking in the new year. And some of them are, some like him, some really remarkable uh, folks that are going to be a real treat. Uh, I hope you'll come back for them. Um, so I've got, a, I've got a, a favor to ask of you. You're, you're going to be an amazing audience, I can assure you, uh, right now. And um, I want you to start thinking about questions for Nate uh, early, because what we uh, agreed on in talking about things is he's going to give kind of a shorter presentation, a shorter version of this presentation. And you can ask questions to go deeper on some of the things that are there. But um, we have an amazing uh, resource here. Uh, Nate is truly one of our great uh, authorities on the election system, on campaign financing, all kinds of uh, matters of our democracy. and. Um, I suspect that many of us in this room have a lot of questions about our democracy broadly uh, this year. So um, one thing you should know is that uh, he is right now under deadline as the special master of the redistricting process for North Carolina. Um, he's drawing fair districts uh, for them, something he's done for four or five different states uh, over the years. And so we may be risking democracy in another part of the country by him sneaking out to talk to us tonight. Uh, and we're really appreciative of that. Um, and uh, so, you know, we um, really do, do think about the, s some questions both on this topic and some of those related ones around district redistricting and so forth um, so that we can really have a great Q&A session 
after this, because we're going to give a lot of time to it. I think we'll all enjoy that. Um, and uh, with that, I think nothing more to do, but please give a big round of applause for tonight's guest uh, speaker, Nate Persley, please. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, apropos of my new role as special master, that is the before photo, this is the after, okay? Uh, <laughs> Uh, it is the most exhausting thing that I do. Um, as, as my, first of all, thank you all for coming. Thank you, Michael, for the invitation. Thank you, uh, uh, everyone uh, here for putting this on. Uh, I'm a law professor, a political scientist, and a lawyer. Um, I often say that you can tell when I'm a law professor because I have opinions without data. You can tell when I'm a political scientist because I have data without opinions. Uh, and you can tell when I'm a lawyer, well, it depends what my client wants me to say. So, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shift between those, two, those sort of three personalities in talking about this question of can democracy survive the internet. I also sometimes say that as a scholar of the law of democracy, there's a sense in which my job is a little bit like an anthropologist studying human cannibalism which is that you have to replace normal human impulses of disgust and revulsion and replace them with fascination and curiosity. And so that, that to some extent, whether you're doing redistricting or dealing with the voting technology or uh, campaign finance reform, um, consider it a coping mechanism. So, so I'll, I'll talk a little bit about some of those uh, other areas in uh, maybe the Q&A, but I want to specifically talk uh, today about my current research and, and uh, sort of what I've been trying to do at Stanford, dealing with uh, the effect of the internet on democracy. So uh, let me tell you how I got into this, because I'm not naturally a techie, even though I uh, you know, am at Stanford and it's sort of in the bloodstream there. Um, the, I, one of my areas of expertise, as Michael said, is, is campaign finance. And so um, when the Citizens United case came down a few years ago, most people looked at that case and said, this is a case about corporations being given individual rights, right? You know, corporations are people and like. If you remember, that case was about how uh, corporations, did they have the First Amendment right to uh, spend unlimited amounts of money on advertising, right? And the Supreme Court said that they did, uh, advertising with respect to campaigns. The case itself, though, really wasn't about corporate advertising. It was about a movie that was put up on demand uh, by this nonprofit corporation called Citizens United, sort of like HBO On Demand or any of the other, you know, Xfinity On Demand, or I don't know, Dish On Demand, I don't wanna be prejudiced here. So, so that, uh, the, and, and so the question in that case was whether this movie that you could download, right, off of this on-demand platform uh, was protected by the First Amendment, or could the government essentially ban a corporation, in this case a nonprofit corporation, from spending corporate funds uh, on a movie because it was a hatchet job against Hillary Clinton, okay? And uh, like I said, most people looked at that as a First Amendment case, and is this all, all about uh, corporations having personal uh, free speech rights? I looked at that case and I said, you know, what this is really about is the future of sort of changing telecommunication and politics. Um, what happens when we move from linear programming, television ads, sort of like the 30-second ads that have been the kind of coin of the realm when it comes to political advertising? What happens when we move from that world into a world of on-demand programming where so much of uh, the political communication is happening principally through the internet, okay? 
And all of our sort of campaign finance architecture and jurisprudence is predicated on a world where uh, it's television, which is the main motive of political communication. In fact, in the case itself, in Citizens United, there was actually an interesting colloquy between Justice Kennedy and the Solicitor General, where he asked him at one point, he says, so if you can ban a movie, if you can, if you can this on-demand movie that Citizens United is trying to put up uh, online, if you can uh, say that a corporation can't put that up, can you ban a book, right? Because, hey, if you can ban one thing, you can ban the other, right? If a corporation doesn't have these speaker, speaker, speaker rights, they shouldn't be able to put up a book either. And he says, well, this is, and the response is, no, this isn't the case about this. This is, you know, it's about uh, television advertising. He says, well, wait a second. Um, are you saying that the First Amendment theory of the government allows the government to ban a corporate-sponsored book? And he tries to evade the question again. And then he comes in and Justice Kennedy says, hey, what about that new Kindle thing? He literally says, that new Kindle thing. Um, and he says, that's, not, that's kind of like a satellite communication, isn't it? it? Because you beam a book down onto your laptop or whatever, a Kindle device, right? Could the government ban that kind of satellite communication? And, and again, the, the lawyer kind of uh, vacillates and, and tries to get around it. And then Chief Justice Roberts sort of like puts his hand on the table and says, what's the answer? If, is it consistent with the government's theory that you would be able to ban a book if the corporation uses its treasury funds in order to fund it? And then the Solicitor Gen General says, yes. And then there was an audible intake of air in the classroom, uh, in, in, in the courtroom. Uh, and so when I teach my students the First Amendment class, I often say, if you learn nothing else during this semester, don't be on the side of book banning when you're arguing before the Supreme Court. You know? <laughs> and uh, that case is what led to uh, the court striking, and th that scenario led to the court striking down the McCain-Feingold law that uh, was at issue in Citizens United. As I said, for me, it really posed the question of what happens when we change from television as the primary mode of communication to on-demand programming and the internet. And so since that time, we've moved from what I'll show you is sort of the more rosy picture of the effect of the internet on democracy to a more apocalyptic uh, view of it. And there are three big questions, I think, that um, are posed by uh, the change in communication technology uh, for democracy. The first is, um, to what extent does uh, the marketplace of ideas, which has been a kind of cornerstone of our theory of the First Amendment and free speech, uh, to what extent has the theory of the marketplace of ideas as the best test for truth uh, really failed in the internet age? It's not clear that the marketplace of ideas was ever either so free or the best test for truth, but certainly in the internet age, I think we're finding that it's not, that it's not that more voices is lastly leading to a greater test for truth. The second is, does democracy require some basic agreement on facts among the population uh, and some minimal trust in institutions? Right? Which is not to say that the internet is responsible for all of that, right? but it exacerbates both mistrust and this lack of agreement on facts. And the final uh, point is, does a democracy require some way of defining the political conversation and community, so, which limits it to people in the country who are human, okay? as opposed to, um, foreign intervention into an election, foreign speakers, as well as bots. Okay, I'll talk a little bit about bots with no offense to Otto here. Um, <laughs> so, as I said, there was a rosy picture of the effect of the internet on democracy up until certainly the 2016 election. Uh, there was the sort of repeated uh, 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 
sort of fawning of praise, particularly on the Obama campaign's digital campaign geniuses who were able to uh, crack the code uh, of the internet to both raise money and to campaign. There was um, this rise in small donor fundraising so that the internet enabled people like Howard Dean and uh, even like Bernie Sanders to raise all kinds of uh, small donor uh, money as well. Um, there was this evolution in micro-targeting that again was sort of an element of um, uh, sort of the tailor-made messaging and mobilization campaigns of Obama and, uh, uh, and others. And the idea that with the end of television ads, we might move to a more sort of small-D democracy kind of environment in which different types of candidates could run that didn't have to have big war chests because they could uh, enable the, you know, YouTube or Twitter or the like could uh, facilitate different types of candidacies that didn't have that kind of money. Um, now, what's happened since the 2016 election is almost, you know, uniform apocalyptic forecasts about, uh, about what the, the uh, uh, internet is doing to democracy. And well, what are those sort of realms? Well, it's the you know, idea, of course, that the internet is promoting fake news. Or it's this rise in Twitter bots and the like that allow, as I was saying before, com communication from machines impersonating individuals. Or, of course, our friend Vladimir, uh, who is uh, you know, representative of uh, the foreign hacking of the US election. And then as well, dark posts on the internet, the idea that you don't even know when you're being advertised to. Uh, and, and so the identity of people is being, and institutions and foreign governments is being cloaked in the anonymity of the internet, right? So we move from so the liberation theology of the internet to this apocalyptic uh, forecast, right? Um, so when I analyze this question, I, I, I think I'm a little bit different than, I, I wanna say that I usually get three criticisms, I should say, whenever I give this talk. The first is, what you think is new is actually old. The second is, what you think is bad is actually good. And the third is, what you think is original, I've written on already. Uh, and so let me say that there's a lot of people who are writing about this. Uh, usually, you know, it's of course with the Stanford professors where you hear that. But, but um, the, you know, th there, there's a lot uh, sort of people analyzing th this question. And yes, some of the phenomena that I would talk about um, um, do have, you know, uh, sort of legacy roots. And so something like fake news, right? We've had since we've had news, right? Um, we've had, you know, propagandistic outlets, monopolistic media companies that have, uh, you know, got us into wars and the like. That's not new. Uh, and I do want to say that, look, there are good things about the internet for democracy. All of those points that I made pre, that we talked about pre-2016 are still true. There are things that uh, and voices that are enabled by the internet that were uh, silenced in the legacy institutions that preceded it. Uh, and then, like I said, there is there's a lot being written on this, so I don't want to pretend that all of these ideas are original. But again, the, the focus I want to look at is what is it about this transformation of the information ecosystem and telecommunication environment that uniquely threatens democracy, okay? And uh, the first feature of the internet that has a, a uniquely damaging effect on, on democracy is the velocity of information transfer. So the speed with which, you know, Mark Twain is reported as saying, um, you know, that you can, uh, th that the truth, or the, the lie moves halfway around the world before the truth puts its boots on. Turns out, if you look on the internet, it's quoted as him saying that in 1917. He happened to be dead by then. Uh, but, 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 you know, that's just an example of fake news about fake news. Um, but he, 
you know, there's something to that, right? Which is that lies travel quite quickly online and that it's extremely difficult to counter them. Now, that's a, that's a phenomenon we all are, are familiar with, but it has particular relevance when you're talking about elections because elections have a fixed date and a sort of predictable calendar to them so that if hypothetically there is a dump of emails a week or two before an election, right, or lies that become pervasive in that short period of time, they are unable to be corrected in a way that was uh, maybe true in legacy uh, institutions, right? That is exacerbated by this sort of uh, coin of the realm of political communication in the internet age, which is viral communication, right? The lack of intermediation by admittedly elite and sometimes uh, uh, paternalistic and authoritarian institutions like say the three networks, right? But in that world, uh, some of the extremes of the information environment that we see today were kept out of the public realm, right? Again, it's not to say that they weren't, you know, they weren't manufacturing consent or doing whatever else uh, in that, um, uh, that pre-internet age. But what we've replaced it with is a premium on virality. And what that means is that whatever types of content are most likely to be forwarded from one person to another are the types that are going to often be popular online and dominate the political conversation. And what are those types of communications, that kind of um, information, uh, the things that evoke emotion, right? Particularly uh, outrage, uh, anger, sometimes love, a little bit less often, right? But, but you know from your Facebook feeds or Twitter feeds the kind of information that you are most likely to click on or that's most likely to be forwarded to you. Third is the internet gives a megaphone to anonymous speakers, which has previously uh, never been given to them. Yes, we have a long history, a proud history in this country of anonymous speaking. Um, the Federalist Papers, after all, right, were published by Publius. Um, and in case you've seen the musical, you know who one of those uh, authors was, right? You know, so it's Hamilton. You don't, you don't know? <laughs> okay. All right. There are two, two others, their, their musicals are on the way. Um, but the, I'm waiting for John Jay, the musical, you know, we'll, we'll see. But there's a proud tradition of anonymity when it comes to political advocacy, right? It's even protected under the First Amendment. But we've never, the, the anonymous speakers have never had the kind of megaphone that uh, the internet uh, gives them. That produces two phenomena. One is it enables the kind of extremist and hate speech that we have, have seen online and that is uh, uh, sort of facilitated by the internet. Um, and, and that's just a broader category of unaccountable speech, right? It's about speech where you do not have to face the consequences of your actions, right? And, and, and your, your, your speech. The second is anonymity is what produces the bot problem. <clears throat> so uh, the, just to, to be clear what we're talking about, we can talk about more in the, in the question and answer. A, uh, right, a bot on Twitter is a, uh, you know, some of you probably even create them, but, but, but a bot, on, <laughs> this is the hazards of talking about this in Silicon Valley or San Francisco, uh, is that a bot is a, you know, an algorithm or, a, or just some code that either by itself speaks, right, sends messages into the um, uh, cyberspace or repeats or amplifies other uh, types of uh, communication. We know that 10 to 15% of Twitter accounts in the US are bots, roughly 40% in Russia are bots. We know the president has retweeted bots over 100 times. Uh, so they, they, they have real effects. We can't measure it, right? We can measure the amount of sort of bot activity online, uh, but it's, it's, you know, it is a new feature of this information ecosystem that replaces what is primarily human-sponsored conversation with 
uh, machine amplification of it. Fourth, the uh, internet facilitates your selecting into information ecosystems that are essentially predetermined for your political beliefs. Now, there's a great debate over this question of what we call homophily, right? Is it the case that our online lives are more echo chambers and filter bubbles than our offline lives, right? Because frankly, it's maybe more likely that you will confront a Republican, um, I say this in the San Francisco, right? Uh, 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 on your Facebook feed than you will five miles uh, west of here, right? And so one, one of the things about homophily or echo chambers is that we, you know, we're becoming politically segregated in so many aspects of our life that uh, it's not clear that the internet, that at least our Facebook feeds and social media feeds are actually that much more uh, politi politically segregated, but they probably exacerbate the political segregation and polarization that we're seeing in the larger culture. Fifth, this question that I've already alluded to, which is the, the sovereignty of uh, uh, sort of the, the, the ability to regulate the political communication environment of a democracy, right? So a country historically has been, we, we, look, we, the US has a proud tradition of intervening in all kinds of countries' elections. It's not like this is the first time uh, this has happened. However, the web is worldwide after all, and because of the anonymity on the internet, it facilitates the ability of cross-national or non-state actors or state actors to have an influence on uh, other countries' democracies. Finally, there's this question of monopoly. And while it's true that we had three broadcast networks that basically had monopoly, they were treated in some ways as public carriers and the like, um, the role of Google and Facebook is qualitatively different than um, those monopolies of yesteryear. Um, because of the amount of advertising that goes through them, because of the ability of those firms to have such a uh, determinative effect on the political communication, I think that they're in a different uh, position. So much so that their terms of service, their uh, community guidelines are in many ways the sort of new First Amendment of our age because, um, or I should say that they're determining the, the, first, the bounds of the First Amendment. Um, when, I do teach, when I teach First Amendment law, I put up the YouTube or the Twitter community guidelines and all of them are unconstitutional um, if they were, if they were uh, enacted by the state. Now that's not actually such a bad thing. In some ways, it might be because our First Amendment law is at such an extreme, uh, internationally speaking. But um, these, you know, whether it's uh, rules against obscenity or against they they ban you know advertisement of guns and drugs, uh, pharmaceuticals, uh, actually probably illegal drugs too, uh, as well as uh, uh, incitement, hate speech, and the like. There's all kinds of rules that these private companies have naturally that. Um, uh, would be unconstitutional if the government passed them. Um, the question is really, where do we go from here? Uh, where should the platforms go? Where should uh, the government go? And there are three basic sources of reform. The first is the government, right? And we can see that the US government, with the exception maybe of the limited area of campaign finance disclosure, doesn't seem to be acting um, to, to regulate uh, political communication online. Leave net neutrality out of it for just a second. Um, European governments, though, are rushing to fill the void uh, that the U.S. is uh, leaving. And so Germany passed its fake news bill uh, to make, basically, uh, fine the internet uh, companies, the, the, the large internet companies, 50 million euros for every illegal speech act that occurs on their platform, right? Um, and, uh, you know, we'll see how that plays out. Uh, secondly, 
there's platform self-regulation, which is where I spend a lot of my time sort of thinking about this. And that's, uh, you know, are the platforms going to add to those other categories of uh, speech regulation that I mentioned before with uh, new rules with respect to fake news or hate speech, and they have rules on hate speech already and the like. And, and they have been moving since the 2016 election quite nimbly, I think, even if not as far as I would like them to do, to uh, try to address, address some of these democratic pathologies. And the final uh, uh, area is self-help, right? Um, some of you are developers in, in the room, right? That they, um, and we have a project at Stanford where we're trying to uh, develop more of this technology. What tools can users have in order to combat things like fake news, like hate speech, like um, uh, you know, like echo chambers and the like, right? Or to combat bots so that you know that an account is, is a bot as opposed to a human. Now, in, when it comes to these three different actors, the state, the platforms, and self-help, they're really sort of uh, seven categories of reform where we're going to see some action. They all happen to begin with D. That, that's almost inadvertent. I don't want to be sort of in a kind of Tony Robbins box by suggesting that, uh, that this is like my seven Ds to you know, solve your life problems or something. Um, but but, but the, here, are, here are the sort of general areas of reform, and then we, I'll, I'll have some concluding thoughts and we can open it up. The first is, uh, as I was mentioning before, deletion, right? So the, the internet companies, the portals, have all kinds of rules, terms of service, community guidelines, and the like um, about some content that's simply not allowed. Part of the question now is, well, is there, are there other additional types of content, uh, you know, falsehoods and the like, uh, uh, maybe more uh, aggressive monitoring of hate speech that should be deleted from online? The second, where uh, Facebook in particular has been particularly aggressive, is on the area of disclosure, right? Trying to give you more information about the speakers and about uh, the content. So that, for example, they have now have these fake news uh, flags for um, news that has been disputed by fact checkers, right? I don't know, have you all seen those fake news flags? I put it up at the beginning. Um, you don't see them all that often. And one of the ironic things is that if you do, you're actually more likely to engage with the story. It's like, it's like oh my gosh, here's something false. It's been flagged. Um, probably not the effect that they wanted. Uh, the, the other is that it, the, there's an interesting Yale study that finds that if they start flagging some of these stories that the there is sort of a, a abnormally high level of confidence that you have in other things that are not flagged, right? So that then uh, it, it has sort of those two counterproductive qualities. Um, but disclosure is, is it's, and, and in the campaign finance realm, they're, they're aggressively moving to try to uh, thwart government action here to pro provide for greater disclosure of spending. Um, the third is, and, and the most likely area when you think about search engines and think about news feeds is demotion of content, right? making decisions about the quality of the information and then putting it lower if it's bad quality and higher uh, if it's good quality. Of course, that's fraught with all kinds of normative value judgments, but it's inevitable, right? Because when, no matter when you put something above something else, you're making a value judgment about what users and viewers should see. Are you going to place a premium on virality, right? Are you going to put a premium on some of the other uh, uh, values that I said at the beginning or the other pathologies on the internet. <coughs> Four, Krishna Bharat, who is the founder of Google News, has a really interesting idea about delaying, sort of putting in tripwires on the internet so that if a story achieves a certain level of virality, we try to, um, uh, at that point, put a stop on it on, on certain social media platforms until 
a human being can uh, look at it to see whether it's true, right? Not eliminate it from the internet, but to just put in some kind of tripwire for virality. Now, you, those of you who work in internet companies know that's, you know, that's not a, a uh, small undertaking, right? To basically monitor all of viral communication online. And so you'd need to have some threshold at which, you know, you'd have to intervene. But that's another reform idea which is out there. Um, the fifth is uh, dilution. Is there a way of having more good content out there to, to diminish the significance of bad content? Um, that sounds like a kind of crazy and an almost impossible idea. It's particularly difficult in the United States um, where we don't have the kind of public broadcasting and public information arms that the European governments have. So that as much as I bet in this room there's a pretty high um, uh, viewership and uh, listening audience to NPR and PBS, uh, uh, in other countries that would be a much larger audience, whether it's for the BBC or particularly in the Scandinavian countries, that spend a considerable amount of money on public uh, broadcasting and the like. And so if you are able, through government efforts, to dilute bad content, uh, that's another uh, possibility. Sixth, um, distraction and diversion. Now this, is, this again is a sort of more authoritarian response. Um, Jennifer Pan, one of my colleagues in the communication department at Stanford, uh, has done some really sort of path-breaking work on looking at how the Chinese government uh, regulates the internet. On the one hand, there's this walled garden idea that they, you know, they're censors, right? There's all kinds of information and communication that's censored online. Um, one of the other things that they do is they have literally a million-person army that's monitoring uh, what's being said online and that sort of guides conversations away from uh, controversial topics. So if Tiananmen Square is the topic of discussion, you sort of have people that come in and they pollute hashtags on particular uh, uh, types of issues. They, they guide conversations uh, in a, another direction. You might think hypothetically if you know, a, a certain leader wanted to distract from a bad news story, one way to do that is to uh, start maybe using Twitter in a way that would uh, distract to another uh, controversy, <laughs> um, hypothetically. Uh, the last is deterrence. And so the, um, I never, uh, next Tuesday, I've been invited to a conference I never thought I'd be invited to as an election law guy, which is I'm speaking at the NATO PSYOPs conference. So I was like, all right, that's when I want to take, right? And, and um, I thought I was going to like Luxembourg and Brussels. It's in Tampa, okay? So, so it's like, it looked glamorous, but all right. So, so I'm, up, I'm a law professor who's going to speak in NATO, great, in Tampa. And so, um, but, but part of the question there is how do you deter uh, foreign cyber activity, um, particularly when it comes to polluting the information environment prior to an election, right? And it's a tricky problem, of course, with our First Amendment. Um, but there are ways that, that, that one can do it. I mean, through classic deterrence techniques, um, you may have seen that we are you know, forcing, for example, RT, Russia Today, and Sputnik to register as foreign agents, in a sense. Um, Google and Facebook essentially punished websites that were putting up fake news and in order to get money through their ad platforms and like. So there are all kinds of uh, deterrent cap uh, uh, tactics that one can take. Um, it's still the, the there, there are still lingering questions though, I think about our capacity to deal with the, some of these problems, as, especially if we're gonna keep the kind of First Amendment tradition that is really unique to the United States. Um, as I said, or implied, in some ways, it's the most, it's the democratic features of the internet that are threatening the democracy. 
Um, it is the fact that uh, viral communication, unmediated communication, is leading to these problems, right? That, that is the, the bedrock problem that we're uh, confronting uh, in, in trying to deal with the democratic pathologies of the internet. Uh, secondly, it's hard to think, of, unless we point to the new information intermediaries as being Google and Facebook in these countries, companies, it's hard to think who else fills historic voids of the kinds of elite institutions that have kind of put bounds on the permissible conversation that pre precedes an election, right? And it's never really been the case that for-profit companies of this magnitude have had that particular role. We can debate about that, but that, uh, you know, th there are certain intermediary institutions, whether you're talking about labor unions or political parties and the like, that simply don't have the power anymore. Uh, to, to guide political conversation in ways that they did previously. And then finally, um, there are really three models out there as to what the sort of future of regulating speech online is going to be, particularly in the political realm. I talked about the Chinese model, right? Um, and that is obviously not, not some, a tradition that we want to emulate uh, in the US. Um, you see what's happening in Europe, right? Which is they're trying to sort of split the baby here and trying in getting uh, some kind of liability for these companies trying to uh, regulate speech online. And then we have the United States, which is really out on a limb when it comes to the First Amendment. Every area of our First Amendment law, whether it's hate speech or libel or pornography and the like, um, is really uh, extreme by international standards when it comes to uh, freedom of expression. Um, are we going to be sacrificing that, right? Is it going to be done by government? Uh, is it going to be done by the private companies? Uh, and so if the question that I started with is, right, can democracy survive the internet? Uh, you know, the clickbaity answer is, the answer may surprise you. Um, I think the, <laughs> the, the jury is out. Um, our democracy is going to have to adapt to the internet in ways that right now we don't even know. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Nate. Uh, that's fantastic. So. Uh, Rio's going to be uh, walking around with the mic. Please get her attention. I've got a couple uh, questions to, to start you off with, but uh, thank you. Uh, and uh, again, seriously, thank you for making the time in the midst of uh, this busy time for you. Um, so my big takeaway is that there's a direct line from Hamilton to these bots. That's fascinating, right? The, the, the anonymous. Don't tell the, <laughs> well, I, I think there's a franchise, or there's a, there's a series in that. Um, so uh, one of the things that, um, before we uh, open up to some, some other subjects, wh when, you, when you look at the other international solutions, and you touched on it a bit there, um, you know, is there a great solution, but it's just, but we're just, uh, the disposition of, of, of Americans is, 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 means we're never gonna do it, or, or do you have odds on any of these uh, novel approaches to us that, that, uh, that, that could have some, some chance of getting implemented here? One of the reasons I spend a lot of time trying to talk to the people at the platforms about this is because I think that they're going to be the, the, they're going to make the decisions. I don't think that the, the governments are uh, quick enough and nimble enough and sort of accurate enough in their laws to really put in the framework that is, is necessary here. And you, let me give you an example in this, even in the area of campaign finance, where I think it's actually the lowest hanging fruit mm -hmm. that we should be able to force campaign finance disclosure online, for example. Um, there's currently a law, the, the proposal, the Warner-Klobuchar law, which would try to 
deal with this problem of foreign election spending in the U.S. as well as you know sort of anonymous spending by by taking the you know the TV rules and then putting them online. Um, one part of that law says, and you know we need to we need to figure out uh, we need to get a library up there of all the ads, you know, so you know that 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 you know if. Uh, a particular campaign is sending some message to you, but a different message to you. We know that, and it's disclosed. And we got to have the targeting information. Who are they going after demographically? Like, seems like a very sensible position. I'm in favor of it. Um, then when you start talking to the, the folks at the platforms, they say, you know what? Right now, targeting is like, sure, there's sometimes when you want to say, you know, white suburban women uh, between the ages of 30 and 40. But uh, right now, you're going to be able to do individual level targeting where campaigns are basically giving email addresses uh, to people so that then you're going to end up with, uh, you know, individual level uh, targeting for, uh, you're not going to publicize that, the individual names of people who are targeted. And same with um, the actual ads themselves so that, and this is true of the Trump campaign, they ran 100,000 different variations on ads, right? Some of which they don't even know they ran, right? And so, and so you're going to develop, you have to figure out a kind of way of having a library of, of these ads, which is different than, say, in the, the legacy institutions. Um, so I think that you know, th they're going to be making these determinations, and the technology is moving uh, so fast that we need to. Now, they need to be pushed along. In some ways, Europe is going to be the tail that wags the dog here. You know, and um, we'll see if they sort of respond to these uh, sort of overreaches by European governments in ways that will then um, uh, be salutary even for our democracy. I should say, and Europe, of course, is not only long. You, you look at South Korea, they took down, their Federal Election Commission took down 100,000 Facebook posts, not even ads, posts, because of the rule on uh, uh, banning election communication proximate to an election. Uh, in in uh, France, in the lead up to the election, um, where there was this big dump of emails on Macron uh, 48 hours before the election, which violated which prevented political conversation about it. Uh, the, the law in France said that uh, you cannot have basically campaigning into 48 hours before an election. Facebook then had to figure a way to block out the email dump on Macron in France, but then allowed everyone else around the world to see it, oh. right? And it's like, you know. And so there, there's, there's just, you know, series of things like this that are happening around the world. Well, and, and, and that's an interesting point. The, we had a talk actually in our first year here, uh, Peter Schwartz on our board, thinking about the future of the internet. And one of the things that he saw was more local versions of the internet, in the way China yeah. does a very oppressive sort of one, but that, that actually, and that type of thing, I mean, it makes you wonder whether a platform emerging from a different culture, from a different governmental situation would balance out or at least change some of these dynamics. Do you? It, it, well, that's China. Right. Yeah. I mean, that, that's basically what's happened in China. That, that they have they have replicated a lot of these internet portals with a, a domestic, authoritarian flavor to them. Right. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, you you, uh, the, but it, it takes that kind of walled garden approach to really get at this. Now, I'm exaggerating a little bit, right? Because as you said, there's diversity around the world, and, and you know, you talk to the folk, the election people at Facebook, and you know, I once I got, I was like, you guys must have you have to deal with this stuff every month. Like every month, we have two elections per week. They said they're dealing with uh, worldwide, right? Um, and they're dealing. I mean, I mean, talk about fake news in the U.S. It's like when they're dealing with the Kenyan election, right? People are dying as a result of uh, these rumors that are that are going online. And and you know, as much as I, I think they're they're sort of accessories in in all this, they they understand the issue, right? If they didn't 
you know, six months ago, they certainly feel like their backs up are against the wall right now. And so, uh, you know, but, it, but there are easy solutions here. It's a real uh, difficult technical and sort of philosophical uh, fix. And uh, just one more before we open up to the uh, questions. Let's give a little bit of background on the gerrymandering side of this real quick. Can okay. you start by just explaining to us what a special master is? We were talking about a little bit earlier. Um, explain what your role is and, and just sort okay. of set the frame for, for folks. And, you've, and is, is this exactly what you've done before or a little different? Or? So I'm under a gag order. So we're all part of this right now. Okay? Uh, I, I can't tell you obviously what's happening in North Carolina. Um, uh, I've, I've been a special master a few times. I've been a court-appointed expert to help courts that with, with solving redistricting controversies. Um, you know, I've got, I got a nice special master placard. It hasn't helped me at home at all. Uh, but but, but uh, my kids still don't listen to me. But, but, but uh, so what I'm, in, uh, what I'm empowered to do right now, as I have in Connecticut and... and Maryland and Georgia and New York twice for Congress is that I'm appointed by the court as a nonpartisan expert to resolve the redistricting controversy by promoting and, and drawing my own plan and then having basically everybody in the state hate me for it. And then, and then the court then adopts it or makes changes to it and then... And everyone um, will hate you at least a little bit, right? Even the people yeah. that you think maybe better... I, you know, what's, what's always amazing, I can tell you lots of stories, is how... Uh, Sometimes the people you don't expect to hate you end up hating you, you know, but uh, that's why I'm here in California and doing a North Carolina redistricting controversy. <laughs> All right, we've got our first question. Um, I was, my main question, I guess, it has to do with the First Amendment and foreign powers. And you mentioned how much protections the foreign uh, or the First Amendment gives uh, communication here in the United States. But could you do, could you have something like FISA that basically just gives no free speech to foreign agents? This is a, a really tricky question, something I and uh, Mike McFall, who's former ambassador to Russia, who, who's head of FSI at, at, at Stanford, we're really trying to think through this. Um, so uh, there is a really open question as to how much sort of first, the First Amendment transcends our borders. Um, to some extent, you can certainly, I'll give you an example, in the campaign finance realm, you're allowed to ban foreigners from spending any money in connection with the federal election. So you obviously can't do that in the United States. So the First Amendment means something different when it applies not just to foreign governments, not just to foreign corporations, but to foreign individuals, right? So there is a different First Amendment when it comes to foreigners. And so we will try, and there are, and if you see what they're trying to do with Russia Today and Sputnik, there are unique regulations that can go after some of these uh, foreign agents of governments. Um, but the internet is an is a anarchic place, right? And so it's becoming increasingly difficult to figure out really who is behind uh, particular types of speech. Um, and especially when you, you're sort of dealing with the corporate environment, you know, where you don't really know the identity of the speaker. You know, is it a domestic? Is it a foreign speaker? Um, um, what, what do we do with trolls? What do we do with bots that are, bots could be, where is a bot located, right? You could have someone in the United States that is basically uh, having one of these bot farms that's retweeting um, foreign content and the like. So this whole sort of jurisdictional element becomes really complicated in the internet age. We've got another one over here. Hey, um, Hi. so it feels like a really big problem is just that Facebook has a news feed at all. Like it's not just, yeah posts that people are sharing, but it's also that they have this sort of 
section of their page that says newsfeed, and they're not a news organization. They don't have journalists, and um, it really is just sort of uh, an example of how Facebook is trying to become the internet yeah. and the source of all information. And for a lot of people, that is the only source of information for their news. So, you know, I, I'm interested in like, how do we go forward, especially when you're talking to these companies that have a vested interest in being sort of the entire internet yeah. and there's just a few companies and then we have actual journalists that are losing their jobs across the country and we don't have actual journalism taking place. So this is a great question and let me tell you what I think the problem is with Facebook, okay? And one that they recognize, which is that, and it goes back to this small d democratization of information. The thing, what you, and you, you put your sort of nail on the head there, or hit the nail on the head, which is that the news feed really isn't about news, right? And so what Facebook does is it organizes all communication in the same way. So that whether it is a, you know, a video of your son's graduation or a Kim Kardashian promotion or a uh, article from Breitbart or an op-ed for the New York Times or just a communication from your friends, it's basically organized in all of the same ways, right? So we don't have any of the cues, the information cues that we have in the offline world replicated in the online world. So that if you go up to a supermarket checkout counter, right, and you see a publication as you approach the register that says, you know, for example, Hillary Clinton, part of satanic cult in Washington in a pizza joint, right? Um, you are probably going to discount that. You probably discount it no matter what. But you certainly are going to discount it as you go toward the cash register because you know what the National Enquirer, the Weekly World News, and the like are. Right? But when it's organized in front of you in your Facebook newsfeed alongside every other kind of information that you have, right, it doesn't have some of the same triggers and signals that you would have uh, in the offline world. And so that's one of the, so what they need to do is try to figure out ways to develop the, those information cues. Now, one way that they've tried to do this, and it, and it directly answers your question, is that they, they're doing an experiment right now that they've done in Sri Lanka and uh, four other countries where they tried to take the news out of the news feed. I don't know if you've heard about this, right? So they said, all right, let's take the actual journalism, take it from the news feed and put it in a separate news. The journalists in that country, the media organizations lost 40% of their traffic, wow. right? And it's like, best of all intentions, I think, right? But, but because the media environment in these countries has adapted to Facebook and Google being the main pipes to which they're gonna end up um, being, you know, getting the news, right? And so, you know, again, they're damned if they do, damned if they don't. Uh, and the question is, how can we maybe sort of uh, drive them in the right direction? So, jump, <clears throat> excuse me, jumping off of that, um, I have an abstract question that needs two quick examples. So I, okay. I'm going to keep this super brief. Um, one is, if you look back in media theory, Orson Welles with War of the Worlds yeah. helped do this weird form of education for the world that a news anchor wasn't what you thought it was by causing mass panic, effectively, but on a benign topic, right? right? Um, and the second example is that in trying to do accredited, in, accredited investor laws to prevent uh, people of low income from being swindled for, out of lots of money because of fraudulent investments, effectively, the government prevented the middle class from getting in on some of the most profitable investments of the 20th and 21st century. So this seems to me, and here's the abstract question, there's always this choice between whether you try to structurally prevent some of the worst abuses that new changes in the landscape allow, 
via legislation or whether you try to educate the entire population as to here's how the people are going to screw you now in a way that they didn't before. How do you think about this trade-off so you don't either over-regulate or try to over-teach? Yeah. So uh, let me start with the education point. So Sam Weinberg, who uh, is a professor at Stanford, has directed this whole study on whether undergraduates, high school students can tell the difference between fake and real news, right? And he finds that, no, they can't uh, find uh, tell the difference. Truth is, neither can most uh, adults. Uh, and, so, and so he's trying to develop a curriculum to try to sort of educate. Uh, but, but this is no small potatoes here, right? You're basically talking about teaching critical thinking. This is not a new problem, right? And so we... Uh, you know, and as you sort of implied, there's always this challenge as to sort of who guards the guardians here, who's going to be the educator, who's going to decide what, uh, what, what qualifies as good information, bad information. And this is when you, you know, the platforms are repeatedly in this bind. Uh, in some ways, I mean, you know, faith, the cloud that hung over Facebook prior to the election was the editing of the trending news topic that they, where they had human editors who were then accused of bias against conservative news outlets, right? And so, you know, there was, uh, so then they replaced it with, with, they took the humans out of the process, and now we have the, them being faulted for um, the, the, uh, what's happening with their algorithms. So I, I think you're right. That is, that is in some ways uh, the big question, and uh, it's, it's not a unique question to the uh, Internet age, but, um, you know, we, we, we are dealing with, I think, unique problems now that require a different kind of solution. My, my question is, I want to focus on journalists. So I work in media and policy communications, and one of the things that was really apparent throughout this campaign was the degree to which uh, trusted news sources really failed to do their job. Yeah. Um, and the example just from today where the Washington Post actually caught someone trying to feed them fake news, that, that's how it is supposed to work. You're supposed to have editors and journalists who vet their sources, who check the veracity of stories, who make sure that they're not spreading misinformation to their readers. Those are their brands. And my question is, you know, without getting into the fact that, yes, Craig, when he created Craigslist, started the media on a long, slow slide to a huge challenge in their business model, let's put that aside for a second. How much can we hold journalists, you know, what can we do to sort of prop up journalism? Because there are trusted sources. I kind of want to push back a little on the notion that just because somebody saw it on Facebook, they're going to be more prone to believe it. I mean, people do put varying degrees of trust in different institutions. Can you talk a little bit about what we can do to sort of bring journalism back to the center of this core role? I mean, because that's really what you're talking about is failed here yeah. um, in this. So part of the challenge here is that... Uh, it's very difficult in the internet age to find who a journalist is and what is news, right? For the reasons I was saying before. And so, uh, you know, because information's coming, so is the Drudge Report journalism, right? I'm, you know, is Breitbart, is um, uh, Huffington Post, is, uh, you know, uh, pick your, are your friends, right? The bloggers and like our academics who are putting it up. Um, and so that's, that's a particularly challenging question. And, 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 and it's challenging all across, across many different legal domains because you're gonna to have to figure out some way if we're talking about regulating the media, right, or even propping up media, who is it we're talking about, right? Um, and so, you know, this is a very difficult question. And so then, um, 
you know, Facebook has these efforts right now, as you probably know, to, to sponsor local journalism, to really uh, juice it up. The foundations are coming in, and Google, all of the platforms have something uh, to do with this. There are other ways we could think about um, uh, making journalism a little bit more profitable again, because of course, as you know, the platforms are basically destroying the advertising and business model of these legacy uh, publications. <clears throat> And so uh, one thing that's been floated is to essentially make them 501c3 organizations so that you could, if you contribute to the, and, and interesting, the New York Times now has an affiliated 501c3, and there are places like ProPublica, right, that are trying to do this. So that's one way you could try to uh, uh, beef up the for-profit model, but it's, it's hard. If you go into the Washington Post building, as I have uh, before, um, in the journalism room, literally hovering over the journalists, is a screen about four times the size of Otto here, right? With the traffic on the website in numbers in real time so that you know how much traffic the Washington Post website is getting at any given second of the day, right? If that's the environment we're living in, right? I, and it's the Washington Post, right? It's like, you know, what, what do we do to change that? Go ahead, another question right here at the bar. What about traceability or citations? Are there discussions yeah. of this where you would cite the article that cites the article that cites the original article? Now, I come from, from science, so I know yeah. you can always find something to support any position you want, but sometimes it's maybe a recognized, you know, high-quality journal, sometimes it's a low-quality journal. Yeah, and Facebook's trying to do that. They're trying to uh, uh, show the origin of, uh, there, there are, are methods that they're adopting to try to go after that. Now, you know, it's a pretty elite group of people who are gonna do that kind of investigation. And, you know, look, I don't think the most of the fake news stories had any effect on the election, right? I don't think, like, the Pope endorses Donald Trump. You know, it's like, oh my God, well, I was in equipoise before, but oh, well, the Pope endorsed Donald Trump, so therefore, you know, I'm, I'm voting, right? And so, the, the, there, it's a real question as to whether fake news had any effect, right? But. Um, there's no question that there's widespread false beliefs out there and that the internet echo chambers, uh, I mean, the Pizzagate scandal being the kind of classic example of this as to how uh, certain types of rumors then have real world effects. Um, but that, that, kind, that, that falls into my disclosure bubble, right, or bucket as to what kinds of techniques we can use in order to show the origins of information and the source. And, and frankly, these, these corporations are doing, the platforms are doing it already. Um, and so I'll give you another example. Facebook has, has moved in the direction of um, downgrading content that is forwarded to you by a friend where that friend has not engaged with the content, right? So that you might think if virality is a problem and particularly kind of clickbaitishness. And so if I see something that's just uh, evoking emotion, I was like, I just forward it to you, right? And I don't actually look at the article, that is then uh, deprioritizing the algorithm as opposed to something I actually read and then potentially evaluated and then sent to you. Um, let me ask you, so, so talking about journalism, I think in some ways we've seen some really strong responses in the media of, yeah. uh, of in some ways like antibodies, the, some of the, the current regime and the fake news stuff that's out there has brought out the best in some of yeah. the news sources that are out there. I wonder if you have a comment on that, and also if to some extent, are you hopeful at all that the law, that, that our democracy will have some strengthening based on some of these challenges? It seems like there are some very um, faulty um, arguments made, whereas we might have expected sort of more cleverness from a different uh, 
uh, some different approaches to uh, to infringing on the Constitution, but in some ways because of some of the Twitter sloppiness of uh, oh, oh, okay. the, the Twitterer in chief or or other or other things, are are there potentially some good outcomes where we we've talked a lot about the flouting of norms, and in the short term that's a real problem. Longer term, is it possible some norms will turn into laws in, in our legal system that have just been sort of custom before? Or are there other aspects that you see of, of positive uh, outcomes to, to some of the atmosphere there's been? So that's obviously a larger uh, question yeah. beyond the internet. Um, the irony, of course, is if you're looking for hope, it's coming from the most undemocratic institutions, namely the courts, right? And so, uh, you know, and that's a... a uh, slender reed on which to hang your hopes, right? Not only because the courts can change and there's going to be, you know, massive numbers of appointments and the like, but, um, you know, it, it, the sort of vicissitudes of, of uh, judicial behavior um, is not necessarily always liberty protecting. But, of course, you know, we've seen the courts being the uh, fulcrums along which a lot of these policies are um, uh, uh, sort of uh, depending. Now, on journalism, yes, there's been a renaissance, right, of both new and legacy journalism, right? BuzzFeed has done some incredible work on, for example, on bots, right? I mean, I learned stuff from their, and bots and foreign intervention. Um, and, you know, legacy, and so you look at uh, uh, The Atlantic has done incredible work, and, of course, New York Times and Washington Post have, you know, been, I don't know if you ever saw this, this great uh, story about Maggie Haberman writing, literally writing an article while she is watching her sort of daughter's, um, you know, third grade uh, performance or something, right? That like gets her the Pulitzer Prize, or you know, it's like some some incredible. Because there, are, I mean, imagine what it's like to be one of these people, one of those journalists. I've had some of them come to my class. You think the bags on my eyes are are, are dark? It's like they're working twenty four hours a day. They can never expect. You know, and and some real gumshoe stuff like the uh, yeah. the Trump uh, charity stuff. Um, yeah. Right, David Fahrenheit stuff. Yeah. I think we've got another. We got it right there. Here we go. Yeah. Hi. Um, so. I'm assuming that most people here can remember a time when we weren't entirely dependent on the internet, but the same can't necessarily be said for the people, you know, the kids that are growing up today. So um, with that in mind, do you think that it's necessary or appropriate to engage the younger generations in the conversation about sort of like this disparity of opinions and authenticity that exists on the internet? Um, you know, I don't know what that looks like, whether it's systemic or what, it's kind of a dovetail off of that education question earlier, but what is your thought on that? Yeah. Well, and I think it's absolutely critical. Um, because, for example, right, if, if, if the problem is Facebook, then, you know, like, young people are not using Facebook, right? And so, um, for the most part, no offense to the Facebook employees in the room, uh, but, but, you know, so, but, but they're using Instagram, so, you know, you can, you can buy another company. Uh, and so, so uh, and, and, and so, uh, you know, or Snapchat, right? It's really, there's some really interesting work being done about how um, the Russians used some of these other platforms and how images then, and memes were then sort of polluting these other platforms. So yes, I think it's absolutely critical. And we at CASBIS, the Center for Advanced Study in Behavioral Science, they have the whole project called the iGen Project, which is all about people who've only grown up knowing the internet, right? And how, what do they, how do they behave? How do they communicate? How do they have relationships online, right? All that kind of stuff. And and your First Amendment class is to is it to undergrads? Yeah. Or, yeah. yeah. And so well, I teach so, it both, but but yeah. So I get undergrads. Uh, as you take my first, I teach an undergraduate First Amendment class, and they educate me, right, about some of these technology issues, especially at Stanford. We have some of the techies who will who will come and take it. It's really you know eye opening. 
Is, is there an anecdote, is there anything particular that jumps out at you that you've learned there or that surprised you about their attitudes either in, on the positive or the negative um, from, that you heard back from your class? One of my former students is Ty Montgomery, who currently plays for the Green Bay Packers, which I'd say, I used to teach at Columbia. That never happened to me there, right? So, so that's something that happens at Stanford. Um, uh, but, you know, what, uh, thinking about what they sort of think about, um, you know, they, they are very familiar. They all have stories, right, about uh, how rumors have spread and how, um, you know, reputations that get destroyed. And so they, they know it, but they also, it's been amazing to me that sometimes, and this happened with one of my students who was live blogging my class. And then when I called her out on it, like not in an uh, aggressive way, I said, you know, for those of you live blogging, and, and she thought I was like invading her private internet at that point. You know, it's like, you know, to some extent, they don't quite get the fact that, you know, we can see all of these things and they're there for perpetuity. Hey, thanks. Um, I, when I, reading your concluding question, questions, my, you know, my mind goes in a direction. I want to see if it's kind of what, where you're going to. In that, I definitely agree, Democratic, that the Democratic character, of the internet, the internet itself, right, threatens democracy as we know it. Mm -hmm. Right. And I would also say that the nature of the internet and how it works in many of its institutions threaten sovereignty as yeah. we know it, national sovereignty as we know it, and that many of the institutions that you're working with are inherently transnational institutions, corporations, Facebook, et cetera. Um, and so those, and you said yourself that in fact those are the institutions now that are interpreting the First Amendment. Yeah. Yeah. They're transnational institutions. And so your last question, to the audience, so to speak, is Europe or China or the United States, or is it really a transnational institution that's the wave of the future? And, and is you know the internet you know making <coughs> sovereignty obsolete? And does democracy depend on sovereignty or yeah. not? Yeah, no, that's right, and that's one of my first questions, right? To what extent do you need a organizing structure, you know, a domestic organizing structure in order to organize political conversation uh, for the democracy. And I think that the transnational character of both these companies and the internet in general is what's really threatening that. Um, let's take a step back. Uh, we've got one of your, a book that you've edited in the back. Let's just speak for a second about that. I think, can, can you just tell us what, what that is? If, let, let people know what it is and, and you're gonna. Oh yeah, well. It, 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 is it relevant anymore? Is it? Uh, is it still? Well, this is the problem. You know, I've been writing this book on de can democracy, uh, on democracy and the internet now for. Um, <laughs> I, I, I started. Work, I started this proposal now three years ago, and the topic of the book has changed 180 degrees. Right? You know, because um, what we, as I was saying, we had this kind of euphoric and and optimistic view of the internet. Now it's completely changed. And one of the areas that sort of contributed to this was what was in that earlier book, which came out, this was a Hewlett Foundation sponsored project on trying to solve polarization, right? Trying to get the smartest, get my political science friends who are smarter than I am to propose, to sort of put their money where their mouth is and propose uh, solutions to political polarization. Now, the polarization as, that we saw a year and a half ago when this was published, right? is completely different than the polarization that we're talking about now. I mean, it's just an order of magnitude. It's not just an order of magnitude, it's just a different kind of polarization um, uh, when you talk about the culture and, and obviously what's happening in the Trump administration. Um, but this is a, uh, th these are the top political scientists who study polarization, each proposing some kind of solution uh, to uh, uh, polarization that we see at the elite and mass level. 
And that's that's the book we have back here, and and he'll be able to sign them afterwards. I think we've got one more uh, question for the audience. Then Nate's going to be sticking around, so we can keep the conversation going afterwards. We'd love for you to stick around. Um, one more yes. question. Yes, one of the founders of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, John Gilmore, has famously said that the internet perceives censorship as damage and routes around it. What would you say to this kind of amoral? almost Nietzschean position that sees these developments as not good or bad, but inevitable adaptations. Could you just say, I, I was moving over here as, as you were talking, just the, the quote is, internet perceives censorship as... The internet perceives censorship as damage and routes around it. Ah, well, um, that's, to some extent, that is true, except uh, in, you know, when it's not, uh, which is to say that, that you know, obviously China is an example in the other direction, right? And, and the Chinese are not uh, able to, to, I mean, they've been figured out a way to wall off that garden. Um, but, you know, there's censorship in the kind of deletion. That, that's why I put up all those different strategies, right? Because there's deletion of content. And yeah, look, you're able to usually, to, you know, if you were an enterprising French voter and you wanted to figure out a way to get the Macron email dump in the 48 hours before the election, a lot of the hackers in this room could figure a way to do that. Um, but most people in France did not see that stuff, or at least wasn't coming over their Facebook feed. Um, and so, you know, there, there are examples of where this kind of censorship in an electoral context actually uh, works. But again, Part of the question is not about deletion of content or prohibiting you from seeing it. It's about how it's organized before you and what values go into that organization as what you're going to see at the top and what you're going to see at the bottom. And just before we let you go, um, to go back to, to gerrymandering for one second, we, we, were, we were talking a little bit. I wanted to just uh, draw you out a little bit on the uh, the class that, that you taught, oh. so, which, is, which is an interesting... Um, for, for those who don't know, so you taught a class about districting when you were at Columbia. You want to tell a little bit about how that worked and, and, and what the outcomes of it were? So uh, one of the interesting things about people, th th there are very few people who work in this area. That's why I've gotten some of these jobs, uh, especially for courts. Actually, the first time I got it, I think I was 29 years old when I did the New York congressional redistricting. And the reason I did it is because everybody else in the country was conflicted out who did this, right? And so that's how I started working uh, for courts. And I don't work for political parties. I've just worked uh, for courts and doing these redistricting things. And so at Columbia, I, I developed drawcongress.org, where we had uh, the students develop nonpartisan plans for all of uh, the 50 states, uh, just so they could develop the skills. And then so that there could be kind of benchmark nonpartisan plans that were out there that you could then judge the partisan plans against. And, and those are actively being used Today, for well, <laughs> no, they're being actively ignored by politicians. <laughs> but, 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 you know, they, they, they um, actively but, ignored. But, but exactly. uh, the consequence of it, right, was that the media at least had something. Uh, what was possible? Like, if you say you can't draw a district this way, um, well, actually, there's you know a 24-year-old student at Columbia who has figured out a way to do that. So, yeah. Well, um, I know that there continue to be a ton of questions, and and we want to get uh, to more of them. Thank you so much for opening yourself up to this big question time here. It's like the British government here for a second. Um, please give uh, Nate a big round of applause. Uh, 
I'd like to give you this Long Now Challenge going to thank you for speaking for us and, uh, and thank you for sticking around. Please stick around as well. Come up here and ask questions. Again, uh, the book is for sale in the back. And thanks again for, thank you for a great year and thank you for, uh, for being here for a great night. Thanks for listening to The Conversations at the Interval. To find out more about our series and Long Now, go to theinterval.org or longnow.org. Thanks again.